0: We're going to get started with this. We're going to see uh, two absolutes that drive your life. And uh, what an incredible time to live. Don't you think? It's an incredible time to live. Um, I'm going to describe what I see. And hopefully this doesn't get you too far down the drain on a Sunday morning. Politics. Politics are polarizing people in increasing fashion. Uh, By the way, Back at the founding of our country, politics were heated and debated. Don't worry, there's nothing new under the sun. Hundred years ago, people were struggling with hatred for each other about politics. So, but they are increasingly becoming increasingly intense. Uh, Social Security, it's a tumbling tower that I have no dreams or any idea that I'm going to get. I smile, but it's. Not security at all for most of us. Relationships with other countries seems to be kind of tiptoeing and becoming more fragile. Are you with me on this? Okay, all right. I'm, I've got a basic interpretation that you all are seeing as well. Okay. And here in our country, I'm finding in that people are becoming increasingly sensitive. Like sensitive. It's okay to tell somebody they're wrong. Right, But people are becoming increasingly sensitive and we're becoming less tolerant of people that disagree with us. In fact, I'm noticing for Christians, we're becoming more thoughtful about what we say and we're kind of tiptoeing on some of the spiritual uh, uh, subjects. And as a result, I think it's happening as a result of we don't want to offend people. And I don't know that it's necessarily born out of just fear, but I think that we don't want to offend people, and everywhere you turn, people are offended. But as a result, the gospel, at least in the American church, seems to be a little quieter. Our being salt and light in the workplace is getting a little quieter and a little less salty. And then pastors, authors, Bible teachers, and worship leaders are walking away from the faith. And we say, what in the world is going on Because some of them are very influential. And uh, if you're serious about your walk with the Lord, you find yourself going, what is going on? And in fact, uh, just like the backyard barbecue, when somebody else is grilling and you can smell it in the air, you can almost smell it in the air that there's a time coming that following Christ in our country is going to become increasingly difficult. You just kind of can smell it in the air. And I've been asking this question is, to live in 2019 and beyond, how are we to live? Like, how are we to rightly relate to the world and be faithful to God and His Word and to live? And we're in a time of history where I believe believers in Jesus no longer have the luxury of kind of sitting neutral on some of these things. And it's becoming increasingly clear we have to be defined and firm on some absolutes. Now, in case you are one who goes down the drain really fast and you're kind of a Debbie Downer, I want to remind you of something. It's actually in Ecclesiastes 1.9. It says this, What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. So whatever you're facing, whatever you're seeing, just know there are people, there are born-again Christians who have, have seen this and have had to navigate these waters. So there's nothing new, okay? So just to encourage you with that. So if there's nothing new and things are repeated throughout history, how are we to live in this time? Can we look back, maybe perhaps on the 2,000-year history of Christianity, and see how born-again Christians have responded to some of the cultural challenges and stayed faithful to God? I'm currently working through a book, written back in 1976, written by Francis Schaefer. It's called, How Should We Then Live? And I feel like I read it a long time ago, but my goodness. It reads like he's writing today. And essentially, Francis Schaefer, he writes about and reflects on Christianity's 2,000-year history and its relationship to governments, its relationship to society, to art, to music, and uh, he rightly starts off tracing Christians' history and its relationship to the Roman Empire. And we're very familiar, most of us are familiar with the persecution that took place in the first 300 years for the believers in Christ and the, the, the killing of Christians in Rome. I want to open uh, with just a quote, it's kind of a quote from his book, just to get, get you guys kind of thinking in that direction and then we'll look at scripture together. But essentially, this Francis Schaeffer identifies two key issues: why the Christians in the first 300 years were martyred for their faith. Two key issues. Okay, so just wade with me on this. He says this: the Christians were killed by Rome. Uh, the reason Christians were killed by Rome was because they were rebels. We may express the nature of the rebellion in two ways, both of which are true. First. We could say they worshipped the infinite personal God only. The Caesars would not tolerate this worshipping of the one and only God. It was counted as treason. Thus their worship became a special threat to the unity of the state during the 3rd century and during the reign of Diocletian when people from the higher classes began to become Christians in larger numbers. If they had worshipped Jesus and Caesar, they would have gone unharmed but they rejected all forms of syncretism. That's the blending of religions. They worshipped the God who revealed himself in the Old Testament through Christ and in the New Testament, which had gradually been written. And they worshipped him as the only God. They allowed no mixture. All other gods were seen as false gods. We can also express in a second way why Christians were killed. No totalitarian authority or authoritarian state can tolerate those who have an absolute by which to judge that state and its actions. The Christians had that absolute in God's revelation, which is God's word. Because the Christians had an absolute universal standard by which to judge not only personal morals but, but the state, they were counted as enemies of the totalitarian Rome, and were thrown to the beasts. So Francis Schaeffer kind of points out two reasons why the early Christians were persecuted. The first one, he said, is that they believed that God's word, the Bible, was their absolute authority. And that authority didn't just extend to them, but extended to the whole world and to the governing authorities. And secondly, they actually worshipped God as revealed in Jesus Christ and no other. Now, that may not seem like much to you, but we're going to be uncovering why that is so important. So today's message, I just want to say it up front. Sid usually preaches expositionally, verse by verse, through a passage. And I talked to him about this this week, and I said, hey, Sid, I'm th- really thinking that this is a really cent- uh, important cultural issue, that I'd like to see what God's Word has to say. Um, just a heads up, I'm not preaching expositionally, we're just going to be talking about, and I'll be going through Scripture, we'll be reading it. But, no worries, we're not going verse by verse, particularly today, because we're going to be covering a lot of, a lot of information. But, so it's not verse by verse. Also, if you've been walking with Christ, this is not going to be new or revolutionary. If you've been walking with Christ, it's going to be some of the same old, same old. But it's going to be a challenge for you, and I'm going to encourage you with this. It's not remotely exhaustive, because you guys don't want to stay around for three to four hours as I uh, trace the history of the church. And But it's really a warning and it's a spiritual challenge. And he, essentially this, as pressures of government, court cases, media, social media, our communities and families press in, how are we to live to stay anchored to God and his word? That's essentially the question for today. And this is what we're going to be talking about is two absolutes that will drive your life. Now, these absolutes drive your life, whether you know it or not. They drive the direction of your life, and that really is a fact. And where you land on the first absolute will drive where you land on the second absolute. And where you land on the second absolute will drive where you land for eternity. So it's kind of important what we're talking about today. And I want to give you the first one. I'm not into keeping secrets from it. Here you go. You guys can write it in. Oh, go back. The first absolute that drives your life is your belief about God's Word. The first absolute that drives your life, you can write in there, is your belief about God's Word. What do you believe about the Bible, God's Word? Specifically, what do you believe about its content and its authority over your life? We here at Open Door teach and firmly believe that God's Word is the authority over our life. This is why I'm not the authority... Sid's not the authority. The boar's not the authority. But God's word is the authority over our congregation and our church family. So the question is, do you believe this? I'm hoping that we can look at some uh, key scriptures and see that the Bible claims itself to be the authority. And then I want to just give some practical examples of how we so quickly slide out of that posture with God's word and we quickly slide into a different posture of assuming the authority over God's word. Let's turn together uh, to Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one. And if you've got the little blue, uh, the blue Bible that's in the chair, it's on page nine eighty four. Page nine eighty four. Second Peter chapter one. Let's see what the Bible claims about God's word itself. So it's claims for itself. And again, we're going to move fairly quickly through these. But it says this in Second Peter chapter 1, and we're actually going to start, uh, let's start in verse 19. It says this, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here you have it, Peter's writing, that prophecy did not have its origin in people, but it came from God. And though human people, human beings wrote it, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to Second Timothy chapter 3 that's on page 965 in the blue bible second timothy chapter 3 and I'll turn there with you second timothy chapter 3 we're going to be picking it up in verse 16 it says this second timothy 3:16 and 17 page 965 all scripture is god-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the text is saying that all Scripture is from God, it comes from Him, and it's useful for something. And the concept is this, we are wrong most of the time. We are wrong most of the time. And we, as human beings, need to be corrected, rebuked, and trained in righteousness. So essentially, this is when we come to faith in Christ, it's a process of getting our brain washed clean into right thinking. And the Word of God is our standard. Keep turning with me. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to see what Jesus claimed about God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, page 786. If you are, like I said, if you're just turning in numbers wise in the blue Bible in front of you, Matthew chapter 5, these are words of Jesus. And it is his claim on Scripture, and I love because it's not just the apostles that were claiming Scripture to be true, but it's uh, Jesus Himself. If I can get there, I'm in Mark, Matthew chapter five, verse seventeen. He says this: Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the Law or the Prophets. That's the Old Testament. It's not coming to do away with it. I have not come to. Com- I have come not come. To abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus is saying here that the Old Testament is not to be done away with. I came to complete it. By the way, there is a movement within Christianity minimizing our need for the Old Testament. Just giving you a heads up. And you'll see it from mainline evangelical teachers. And I want to warn you, don't eat that poison. God gave us the whole counsel of his word. And the Old Testament points to the Messiah and allows us to reveal our need of a Savior through the Old Testament law. Right? It's through God's laws that we're aware that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And so Jesus himself... Uh, valued and upheld the Old Testament said I came to fulfill it and he had a firm confidence that God's word would not disappear not even the smallest letter would disappear until it's all fulfilled so that's Jesus Christ himself and then our last uh, passage we're going to read particularly as it relates to this is in Isaiah 40 and then go to the Old Testament it's on page 586 but Isaiah 40 and uh, I call this humble pie passage when it comes to god's word and what we think about ourselves isaiah isaiah 40 verses 6 through 8 page 586 isaiah wrote he says this a voice says cry out and i said what shall i cry all people are like grass and all human faithfulness is like the flowers of the field the grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So, you know, as I read this passage, I think we might hold an over-inflated view of ourself or what we may think at a particular time in history. Our faithfulness is like grass. And if you own any property whatsoever, you're very aware that things are dying off real quick. So I want to encourage you to think through, we're changing, we're, continu- we're very short term on this earth. And what do we anchor ourselves to in this very short life? The board, our church elder board, is working through uh, core values of our church. And we're looking at our doctrinal statements, and we're looking at kind of who we are as a church. And we're actually taking a segment of our monthly board meeting and saying, what is it that makes open door, open door now? And what is it that makes open door, open door long term to be open door that God called open door to be? And uh, it's not ready to be unrolled. We're going to be working through through it during the course this year, but I just wanted to share... The very first core value that we were completely unanimous, no questions about, it's the number one thing that we believe makes open door, open door. Here we go, it's hot off the press. It's actually really not even ready for release, but here we go. The Bible is the inerrant word of God. We teach God's word as fully authoritative, seeking at all age levels to promote Bible knowledge and apply it to daily life. So there you have it, all ten of us together in unity saying, the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And when we say inerrant, we actually mean that Scripture is without error in the original autographs. It tells the truth. And though some of our English translations translate better than others, or more accurate than others, the originals are perfect. Perfect. And I want to encourage you, if you have not worked through what you believe about God's word, you don't have the luxury to sit there very long, I want to encourage you to go to bible.org, and I want you to look up by author, and I have vetted this author, and I think the world of I mean, him, here, here we go, you guys can write this down, write out the name, Sid Lidkey. Yeah, Sid Litke. If you go to Bible.org, search by author Sid Lickey, Sid has written an article that I think is fabulous. Um, It is called, Is the Bible Reliable? Seven Questions by Sid. And I want to encourage you to check it out, work through it, because uh, we know that God's Word is reliable and that there's nothing new under the sun, and Christians have been asking these questions for years. But I took a quote out of his little study he's got there, and I want to read it with you. It says this, When inerrancy is not held, one by one, certain Bible doctrines, the deity of Christ, historical facts such as the literal creation and other biblical views on issues such as homosexuality or women's roles are denied. Sid wrote that back in 2008, just so you know, that the doctrines of the church are being denied because people do not believe God's word is without error. And here's how it works when you believe that God's word is your authority. So trek along with me. You kind of know. This is an indicator. I have two different slides to show. Do you believe God's word is the authority or have you set yourself up as the authority? Here it is. When the Bible is your authority, you read the Bible. Something's not clear and it doesn't make sense. You humbly admit that there is a gap in your understanding and not in the word of God. You pray and ask God to help you understand. You submit and obey what God says to you in Scripture. You keep asking His help. You keep reading and seeking all of Scripture. And you humbly wait on Him in faith for the things that aren't clear. You keep this pattern and refrain from applying wisdom from this world. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Pastor Jim is known for repeating this this Scripture... And he actually uses this in the chronological study that he teaches. But do not deceive yourself. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Check out verse 19. Love it. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. So according to verse 19, applying the world's wisdom to our interpretation of Scripture is foolish. Now, I want to be honest and vulnerable with you all, um, and this may come to surprise for you, and I find out there's more and more in our church family that are surprised by this. Your pastoral staff firmly believe in a six-literal-day creation. We hold that, we've studied the scriptures, and we hold to a six-literal-day creation. And we hold a view of a young earth, roughly estimated when you look at the scriptures, six to 10,000 years old. And I admit there are gaps in my understanding. I'm just going to acknowledge it up front. As I read scripture, there's things that just I don't understand. Here's one of them. The earth appears to be older than six to 10,000 years old. I acknowledge that. God's word says he created the the days of creation were days. We take it at face value. And as a result, there's a gap in my understanding. The earth looks really old. Now I can come up with all sorts of arguments why it's old through scientific study. I can also take science and argue that why that day can't really be a day. But if I take it at face value, there's a gap in my understanding and I have to rest in the fact that God's word is my authority. Here's another reason why, with our current scientific understanding as of today, we know the speed of light travels, and we know that 60,000 to 10,000 years, according to current scientific understanding, we know that it's not enough time for some of the stars that we see, the light, to get here. So according to my current scientific understanding, there's a gap there. When I believe God's Word is the authority, it wins when there's a gap in my understanding... Or there's a gap in current scientific theory. So I use it as an example. And so I trust in what the Bible says, and I seek not to add man's wisdom. So here it is. I wrote this down. When the Bible is your authority, it wins when there's a difference between your culture, your emotions, your actions, your current scientific theories, your personal understanding, and your experiences. That's what it means when the Bible is your authority. Here's how it works when the Bible's not your authority, okay? Check this out. When the Bible's not your authority, but when you're the authority, you read the Bible, something's clear to you, and you disregard it since you don't like it. We kind of chuckle, but oftentimes we do that. That's just a clear, upfront explanation of believing yourself to be the authority. I don't like it, therefore I don't want to believe it. But many of us slide into the third point here. Something is unclear to you, and you seek worldly wisdom for clarity. And here's some of the applications that we do. You apply current scientific understanding as your lens. So you take what scientists are saying currently, because we know it changes, and then we try to understand Scripture. That's actually setting yourself up, setting man as the authority. You also apply your rationale or reason or speculation. There are some passages of scriptures that I can say, I speculate or I think, But the truth is, don't hold firmly to your speculation. Let God's word inform you. Next in line, he says, You allow emotional current trends or issues to inform your beliefs. We are a hyper-emotional culture. We make emotional decisions. And because we have sensitive people barking really loud, we find ourselves interpreting scripture based on the emotional current trends. You allow your experiences to inform your beliefs. A lot of us will come to the text and say, but I experienced this, so this must be true. And I want to warn you against that. Sometimes experiences can be misleading. And then lastly, you can allow your fear of man to drive your conclusions. Well, certainly I don't want to believe in the doctrine of hell. People reject me. It's in the scripture. So here's really essentially how it works, is that when you are the authority, your culture... Your emotions, your actions, your current scientific theories, your personal understanding, and your experiences drive your interpretation of the Bible and your application of it. So according to Isaiah 40, verse 8, we're like grass. And according to 1 Corinthians 3, our wisdom is foolishness in God's sight. So a checkpoint for all of us. Here it is. Have I consulted and have I submitted to God's word as my authority, before I make this decision or form this belief? Is that fair? This is not rocket science. This is not revolutionary to you. I just, have I consulted and submitted to God's word as the authority before I make this decision or before I form this belief? Is that fair? All right. So I got thinking about this. Why do you think there have been so many governments throughout the history ...of the church that have sought to eliminate God's word. As Francis Schaeffer said earlier... ...it has binding authority, it convicts people's hearts... ...and it's an absolute standard by which to judge people. And ancient Rome didn't have a place for it... ...and I believe as a government and as even our government... ...increasingly doesn't want to be held accountable... ...you'll see a further rejection of the Word of God. If you don't accept the Bible as your absolute, unconditional authority, I ask this question, what is your authority? Whatever that is, you will trace it back to and it will eventually come back to you deciding what's right and what's wrong. The Bible calls all other authorities foolishness. So what you believe about the first authority, God's Word is the authority, will drive what you believe about the second one. You guys can get your pens And write it in. The second absolute that drives your eternal destiny is your belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven. We're going to turn to John chapter 14, two passages that we'll uh, we'll close out our time with. John chapter 14, and that's in page 875 in the Blue Bible. But John 14, and again we're going to read two passages. We're going to read what Jesus claimed about how to get to heaven. And then we're going to read what the Apostle Peter claimed on how to have our sins forgiven and get to heaven as well. John chapter 14, page 875. Such comforting words from Jesus. He says this, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is talking about this heavenly experience where he's going, and I'm preparing a place for you, and you know the way. And Thomas says, we don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Early Christians were not known as first Christians. They were known as followers of the way because he is the way. And so we get this idea from Jesus that there isn't, he isn't one of many ways, but Jesus clearly communicated and articulated here that he is the one and only way. The Apostle Peter, after the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 4, and it's our final passage that I'll have you turn to, Acts chapter 4, that's page 885. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. And uh, Peter actually heals Peter and John are standing before the religious leaders. They heal this man. And we're going to pick it up in verse 7. Acts chapter 4, verse 7. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, And are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, and that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So there you have it. Jesus not only claimed to be the only way, Peter the Apostle affirmed it to the religious leaders that Jesus Christ is the absolute only way. And he says that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Saved from what? Romans 3 says that all have sinned. Romans 6 actually says the wage of our sin is death. And in Romans 1:18 and John 3 it says what happens after we die in our sin. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. All the more reason why we can't trust ourselves because we suppress the truth by our own sin. And in John 3, Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. And so it is an absolute fact, as we look in Scripture, that Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection is the only way to heaven. It's crucially important that you are trusting in the correct person of Jesus and the correct work, that is, his death and resurrection as revealed in the Bible. And lately, in some of the studies we've had here, um, we've been talking through, and it's been come up, the nature of Jesus, what's he like. And I have to admit, it's very difficult to comprehend Jesus as being the God-man, fully God, fully man. It's very difficult. And there was a question that a guy heard a couple weeks ago in AB Adult Bible Fellowships, and I've heard it multiple times over the last few months are we just splitting hairs trying to really get to an understanding of the exact nature of Jesus? And the answer is, no. We are not splitting hairs. That Christians over the last 2,000 years have been pressing in and valuing the very study and understanding of who Jesus is in Scripture. And in fact, it's out of that study that as people have swung the pendulum one way or another, false doctrines have come up. And so I want to read to you our doctrinal statement from the website that we've got out there, public for everybody. They are core teachings of Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture. And so they're just they're taken from Scripture, they're revealed here. And I'm just going to read these to you because we want to make sure that as we say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, it's not some counterfeit Jesus not described in Scripture. So here we go. Key truths about Christ, when we say Jesus Christ is the only way. Scripture teaches that Jesus existed eternally. So he was there at creation, he created the world, but he was actually there before the foundations of the world. Okay? He was born of a virgin. He didn't have a sinless father. Okay? Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. His incarnation, Jesus became man without ceasing to be God. As people have sought to understand this, they, they really wrestle with this idea of how can he be, stay God and be man. But we see in Scripture that he was truly man, like us in every way, yet without sin. He was truly God. He never stopped being God. He lived a sinless life. His death on the cross was payment for our sins. Christ was resurrected from the dead and his resurrection was literal and physical, and that his actual body was transformed into an eternal glorified body. So that he died and rose again, and that he ascended, and that he continues to intercede for us. So scripture paints a very real and clear understanding of who Christ is, and his nature, and what he came to do. And if you will read it, you will submit to it, and you will believe it, you will find that Christ is fully God, yet fully man. And he is Emmanuel, he is God with us. I'm going to share a story with you, just an example of kind of the attack on the personal nature of God coming as man in the name of Jesus Christ. Because there's a cultural pressure to remove the personal nature of God and to call God universe. I don't know if you've heard this, but there's a real, like, there's a real acceptance of kind of moving away from the personal nature of God and I've heard more and more, particularly millennials, referring to God as the universe. So Anya, my wife, was at the grocery store back a few months ago. And uh, the cashier here was, honestly, is a fantastic person. And we really enjoy him every time we come to the grocery store. represents the grocery store well. And he always asks, how are you guys today? And Anya just spoke up and she said, we feel so blessed. We just, I mean, look at all this food Just look at all the things that's been provided for us. And he directly said, Yep, got to thank the universe. Got to thank the universe for all the food it provides for us. Meanwhile, my two little girls who are 7 and 10 are standing there. And my wife is thinking, They know the truth. And they know I know the truth. What do I say? And my wife is not confrontational. And I think she was empowered by the Lord. She just said, well, actually, we believe that there is a loving God who created us, who provides us food to eat. And he quickly t- changed his tune. He said, yep, got to thank God. Got to thank God for that food. And we just chuckle. But I want to encourage you, don't swallow that poison. It's poison. It's poison because it takes the very nature of God in Jesus Christ and removes the personal nature of God that we see in the whole of Scripture and how He's moving us closer to relationship back to the garden together. So, there is, little, there is cultural acceptance for Christians to say they believe in God. There is little cultural acceptance, little, 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 for those who say that they believe in Jesus Christ as the only way. I'm just telling you, You get in spiritual topics and you believe in God, and people go, That's good. If you say, I believe in Jesus Christ and I believe that He's the only way, I tell you, you're very likely going to get, That's not so good. In fact, you're considered radical, and you're actually, there'll be some, some who will call you a threat, which sounds a lot like the ancient Rome with the Christians. There's nothing new, friends. There's cultural pressure to say that everyone is basically okay as long as they're sincere or they believe in generic God. But Jesus didn't say that. Peter didn't say that. Paul did not say that. The Bible doesn't say that. And Christians over the last 2,000 years have never claimed that there are other ways. So don't eat that. It's not good for you, I promise. Jesus, uh, Jesus described as this is described in Second Peter chapter 2 as the stone of offense, the stumbling block. And I just want to just, as I close this time out here, it has been and it always will be offensive to the human pride to hear that we sin against the holy God, we cannot earn our way back to God, and that we are helplessly dependent on the Savior. It's offensive and it will always be offensive. Just don't be surprised by that. And that the gospel, that Christ died and he rose again for our sins and that he extends forgiveness if we put our faith or trust in him alone, friends, that will always be offensive to the pride of mankind. The name of Jesus is how we are saved, but it will be the sticking point for people. Don't be surprised. And where you land on this second point will drive where you land for eternity And if you believe Jesus is the only way, friends, you will open your mouth and share because you realize that people around you need him as their Savior. So I want to encourage you truly, we do not have the luxury of sitting neutral on these two issues, Jesus Christ being the only way, the word of God is our authority. If you have not worked through them, I really encourage you, uh, Pastor Sid has really done seriously a fantastic job of writing these articles. There's thousands of people that have actually logged into them linked into them and looked them up. And what I like about them is they're not particularly wordy, like a study. They're scripture, and they're intended to get you into God's word. So Bible.org, search author Sid Licky, and you'll see how we got our Bible, uh, core doctrines of the faith, and why we believe them. And I encourage you to check those out. So holding closely to these two absolutes brought persecution to the early church in Rome. And if you hold closely to them, don't be surprised if you're not popular. Don't be surprised if your neighbors think you're a little odd. And the call is not to be weird, but the call is to be faithful to these two absolutes, and they will drive the direction of your life. And apart from a few key moments in history of revivals, the church has always been uh, looked down on, uh, ridiculed, or persecuted for their belief and their faith in these two views. And we can expect that there will be a continued undermining of people who call themselves Christians who hold that the word of God is their authority and that Jesus Christ is the only way. Hold firmly to these things. If I could scream that and not freak you all out, I would say it. Hold firmly to these things. And I think it would be appropriate today, second service, at the very beginning of the hour, so 1045, we've got four students that are actually publicly declaring their faith through baptism. And I want to encourage you, actually, if you guys come to the Adult Bible Fellowship Hour, come in, literally just stand at the back if there's not room, and celebrate their public confession of faith. Celebrate that. So please come back for this. We actually intentionally put it at the beginning of the service so you all could come in, poke your head in, and celebrate students sharing their faith and declaring that and showing that through baptism. And I think it would be appropriate if we would end our time with a congregation public declaration of what we believe. Can we do that? All right, so there's two passages or two sections I would like to read together. And can we read the passages together? Can we do that? All right, first one is Second Timothy chapter 3. Let's read it together. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then Isaiah 40. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. All right, so... I'm going to ask if you believe this next statement, say it with conviction. You ready with me? Ready to go. We believe God's word is our authority. Okay? And then public confession, here we go. Acts 4.10. Let's read it together. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And then get ready, okay? Here we go. We believe that Jesus Christ, God's Son, is the only way we can be saved from our sin. Hold firmly to those friends. Nothing new, but the culture's pressing in, and you're going to feel this pull to pull away from the authority of God's word and the belief that Jesus Christ is the only way. And so if you leave here with a greater confidence in God's word or a challenge to get into God's word and to firm up your belief as as the authority in your life, then it's a win today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I realize that in myself I have no confidence. I realize that in myself I'm, quite frankly, just an average person. We're thankful for your word and how it teaches us and informs us and corrects and trains and rebukes us. Thank you for each person here who has prioritized the coming together of the reading of your word, the coming together as a church family, And Lord, today, um, please give us a resolve and an anchor to your word, that we may love you, that we may know you, that we may truly and accurately worship you according to your word. And Lord, today as a congregation, we submit and meet under the authority of Christ. We celebrate him as our Savior, and Lord, joyfully, even as we study the scriptures in the Adult Bible Fellowship Hour, we joyfully acknowledge him as the boss of our lives so that we can line our lives up with him and enjoy fellowship with him. Lord, help us to be faithful to your word and faithful to declare you, Jesus, as the only way until you come back. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.